Good morning. This is Pastor Mike Letterman with ChristLives.org. Today we continue our series of lessons in the final countdown with Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. Praise God, the King is here. You know, the opening chapter of Revelation sets the tone for everything else that will happen in the book. Revelation 1.1 tells us that this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1, 7 through 8 says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall well because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. This book is about Jesus and is about his return to earth to rule and reign. Revelation chapter 5 takes us into heaven. God is shown holding a book that is sealed with seven seals. Chapter 5 verse 1. A search is made in heaven and in earth to find someone worthy to open the book, but no one is found. Verses 2 through 3 of chapter 5. John weeps at this news because he desperately wants to know what is written in the book. 5.4 John is told not to weep because the Lamb of God is worthy to open the book. Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. When the Lord takes the book from the hand of God, heaven erupts into praise and worship because the Lord Jesus has been found worthy to take the book and to open its seals. Revelation 5, 8. When we studied that chapter, we discovered that the seven-sealed book was a title deed of the planet Earth. You see, Satan is called the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He may be a little g God of this world today, but he is not worthy to retain his grip on the world. This world belongs to Jesus and to Jesus alone. The day will come when he will take possession of this world away from Satan. This world belongs to Jesus because of three great truths. Number one, it is his by the right of creation. He made it. Number two, it is his by the right of Calvary. He redeemed it. Number three, it is his by the right of conquest. He will retake it. The entire book of Revelation has been leading us to this great moment we will consider together today. The whole purpose of the tribulation period in chapters 6 through 18 is to prepare for the world for the coming of the king. The passage we are about to study today speaks of the great moment in the future when Jesus will return to this earth in power and glory to claim what is rightfully his. The first time Jesus came to this world, he came as a redeemer. The next time he comes, he's coming as a ruler. The first time he faced a cross. The second time he will wear a crown. The first time he came, there was a tomb. The next time he comes, there will be a throne. So let's study these verses together as I preach on the thought, the king is coming. Let's notice the truths that are contained in these verses. I don't mind telling you that these verses excite me greatly. I'm tired of hearing the name of Jesus treated like a byword. I'm tired of seeing his gospel treated like a lie. I am tired of watching Satan and his lost sinners live as though the Lord Jesus does not exist. I am looking forward to that day when Jesus Christ will return to this world in power and in glory. And on that day, he will destroy his enemies and rule on this earth in righteousness. Let's study that great day together because the king is here. Let's read from God's word. 
I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dripped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, who cried in a great voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Amen. Let's look at the coming of the king. This is the second time the door has been opened in heaven in the book of Revelation. The first time the door in heaven was opened, it was opened so that the church, the bride of Christ, could join the Lord in heaven. Revelation 4.1 When this door is opened, it allows the Lord to ride out of heaven to return to this earth. That first door speaks of the rapture of the church. The second open door in heaven speaks of the return of the Christ. Let's look at the king's appearance. These verses tell us how the king will appear when he returns to the earth. He's full of glory. When Jesus comes to this earth the first time, he was concealed in his heavenly glory because of the flesh of his body. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Those who saw him saw a common, ordinary Jew. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2. Remember what I keep telling you. The Old Testament always points to Jesus Christ in the New Testament and to the end as he becomes the Savior of all mankind. Even though he was the creator of the universe in human flesh, he didn't even have a place to lay his head. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20. The next time he comes, things will be different. He will come on a white horse. You know, ancient Roman generals often rode white horses in their triumphal processions. John sees Jesus returning as a conqueror. The last time the world saw Jesus, they saw him dead on a cross. The world looked at Jesus as a victim. The next time they see him, they will see him as a victor. He is not coming the second time to die. He is coming to reign. Verse 12 describes Jesus as having eyes as the flame of fire. This speaks of his power, his glory, and his right to judge sinners. Jesus is coming as one who sees all, knows all, and controls all. He is returning not as a savior, but as a judge. He is faithful and true. 
You know, modern politicians rarely speak the truth. They usually tell us what they think we want to hear. They often lie to keep their jobs and to fulfill their agendas. My dad used to say that if they aren't crooked when they go in there, they're crooked by the time they come out. I'm sure there are exceptions to the rule. But Jesus is not like those men. He always tells the truth and he will do everything he says he will do. I am so glad today that we can depend on the promises of the Lord Jesus. Men will fail us, but he will always do what he has promised. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. See, Jesus fights in righteousness. Most of this world's wars have been fought over false pretenses and foolish objectives. Some would question our nation's motives when we were in Iraq and Afghanistan. But our Lord's cause is just and holy. He fights for the honor of his Father's name and glory. He fights against unrighteousness and evil. He wages war for the glory of God alone. The Lord is a man of war. Exodus chapter 15, verse 3. Let's look at his name. His name is the name of mystery. What is this mysterious name? No one knows but him. You can study all the names of Jesus given in the Bible, but he will be more than our mortal, finite minds can comprehend. Someday he may tell us what the mystery is. He may let us comprehend him fully someday. But here's the point. Mankind has refused to know Jesus Christ. They would not use his name except as a byword, as a slang word, as a curse word. Now the day of grace has forever passed. Now they cannot know him, even if they desired to. Look at verse 13. It is the name of his ministry. He is called the Word of God. The first time Jesus came, he came as God in human flesh. Look at John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. He is the word of God. He came to fulfill the prophecies and the promises of the word. He came to go to the cross and pay the cost for sin and sinners. The next time he comes, he is coming to fulfill the rest of the word of God. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. Verse 16 says, it is the name of majesty. You see, his name is written on his thigh. The thigh symbolizes strength, stability, and power. When Jacob wrestled with the angel, the angel touched Jacob's thigh and his power to resist was broken. When Jesus comes the next time, he is not coming as the lowly Nazarene. He will not be the butt of cruel joking and mockery. He will not be mocked, stripped, beaten, spit upon, and crucified. He will come the next time as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. His name is also written on his vesture. His garment is a symbol of his position. When Jacob gave Joseph that coat of many colors, Jacob was telling everyone who his favorite son was. Joseph's brothers saw that coat, and they knew Joseph was the apple of his daddy's eye. Jesus is the ultimate ruler. His very garments prove that he is worthy of faith and worship. 
verse 13, we look at the king's apparel. His garments are stained with the blood of his enemies. You can look that back up in Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 6. What a day it will be when the eastern sky rips asunder and King Jesus in all of his glory and power rides forth in awesome and absolute victory. In chapter 14, we see the king's army. I know some have never thought of being members of a mighty army. Most Christians that I know may not think that they're members of a mighty army, but here we are. This verse tells us that Jesus will be accompanied by the redeemed saints of God when he returns in glory. How do we know that these are the saints? Their very description tells us. Look at their apparel. They're clothed in fine linen, white and clean. This is the same wording used to describe the appearance of the bride of Christ in verse 8. When horses see me coming, they say, nay, nay, but on that day I will saddle up, saddle up and I will ride back with my Redeemer when he comes in glory. We are the saints in verse 8. Let's look at the king's armament. When he comes, Jesus will need no carnal weapons. It's hard for some people to think. There was a time in my life when I carried an M24 sniper rifle in a place far away from here, and I did what was called upon me to do. Jesus won't have any such need for any such rifle or any type of armament that's available on planet Earth. He will open his mouth and unleash the power of his word. There is power in his word. He created this universe and everything contained within it with the word of his mouth. His word has the power to bring light out of darkness and life out of death. He speaks and it happens. His word is a living thing. Look at Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. It is an extension of himself. It has the power to heal and give life. And it has the power to destroy and kill. Jesus spoke and the waves lay at his feet like puppies. He spoke and a fig tree withered. He spoke and a dead man named Lazarus walked out of his tomb. He spoke and the scales fell from my eyes. In the depths of my sin and my deadness, I heard his voice when he called me to come to him. His word came and brought light and life. There is power in his word. The power of his word is put on display in John 18, 6. Jesus spoke and the soldiers were knocked off their feet. Let's look at the command of the king. So he commands the fowls to come. God is about to prepare a feast for the fowls of the air. They will feast on the flesh of his enemies. You know, there has already been a sharp decline in the populations of various scavenger birds around the world. In Africa, Asia, and the Middle East, scavenger bird populations are at dangerously low levels. That shouldn't surprise us. When this day comes, the Lord will call these birds to gather from around the world. They will come at his command. Just as they came when Noah built the ark, they will come for the great feast the Lord is about to place before them. 
Verse 18, he commands the flesh to be consumed. In life, these men have been separated by rank, title, and power. In death, they are all made equal. There's a lesson there. There's a tremendous lesson there. It doesn't matter what you are in life. We all exit this world through a single gateway. And without Jesus, it's a dead end. You see, death is the great leveler. You may be somebody in this life, but when death comes calling, you will find that you are nobody without our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to notice that the word flesh is found in this verse five times. Some people want to blame all evil on the devil. Others want to blame everything that is wrong on the world. The devil and the world are terrible enemies, but there is a third enemy, and that's the flesh. Satan may tempt us to do evil, but it is our stinking flesh that follows Satan into sin. That word is filled with allurements and attractions that the flesh longs to indulge in. If it weren't for the flesh, Satan and the world would have no power over man at all. You know, there's some chance that you've been fighting some battles with your flesh. Chances are you've also been battling with the world and the devil. Well, I've got some good news for you. The book of Revelation talks about the judgment and destruction of all three of our enemies. The world is destroyed in Revelation 18. The devil is destroyed in Revelation 20. And the flesh is taken care of here in Revelation 19. I praise the Lord that there's a day coming when my flesh will be changed and it will cease to be a problem in my life. My back that's injured from an old helicopter crash back in 1983 will no longer be a problem. My knees will no longer be a problem. I praise the Lord that there's a day coming when the Lord of glory will destroy the power of the flesh forever. Verses 19 through 21, we see the conquest of the king. In verse 19, he draws the armies to Armageddon. We have looked at the battle of Armageddon several times already in our study of this book. That great and terrible day has finally arrived. All the armies of the world, many of whom are enemies today, will join forces to try and defeat the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Their mission will be to put an end to God, the saints of God, and even the mention of the name of God. Their plans will all fail. You know, man thinks that he is in control of his own destiny. He thinks that his decisions, his plans, and his desires make some kind of difference. God is sovereign and not man. Let me repeat that. God is sovereign and not man. God determines destinies and not man. God rules and not man. The very fact that the armies of the world gather themselves together in the valley of Megiddo at this moment in time proves that God and not man is in control. These puny humans think that they are going to defeat the Lord and his people. They think that they are doing what they please. In reality, they are carrying out the perfect will of a sovereign God. He is pulling all the strings, calling all the shots, turning the dial, and directing every step to ensure that his plan for the ages is perfectly and completely fulfilled. 
If you doubt me, look at Psalms 115, verse 3. Psalm 135, verse 6. Isaiah 46, verse 10. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Revelation, verses 20 through 21. He destroys those armies at Armageddon. Not only does the Lord have the power to draw the armies of the world to Armageddon, he also has the power to defeat them once they are there. You see in verse 20 that the devil's men are destroyed. The Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown alive into the lake of fire. The two demonically inspired individuals will be taken by the power of a sovereign God and cast alive into the lake of fire. These two minions of Satan will not experience physical death. They will be taken alive and sent immediately to their eternal doom. Hell is waiting with an open mouth to receive these two pretenders. Imagine the shock of this world when right before their very eyes, their leaders are taken and cast into hell. In one instant, the world will see their allegiance and their faith has been misplaced. They will see that when they were that they are fools. It may even dawn on them in that moment that they are lost, doomed, and destined to hell. In verse 21, we see that the deceived multitudes are destroyed. The assembled armies of the world are defeated in a single moment by the power of the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will die at his word, and their blood will flow to the horses' bridles. Their souls will drop off into hell to await judgment at the great white throne as their flesh is consumed by the fowls of the air. You know, this is a terrible scene. It literally will be played out someday. You see, the world rejected the Lord Jesus as its Savior, and now it must face him as its judge. There's a truth here that we must not miss today. The very word of God that tells you about a Savior who loves you and who will save you is the same word that tells you about a judge who will judge you if you reject him. The same Bible that teaches a saving gospel to the repenting sinner today will be the means of slaughter in that final day. Here's what God says about that final day in Psalms chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. What would you rather hear? The voice of God, as he says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. Or depart from me, I never knew you. Would you rather hear him speak peace or judgment to your soul? You can have either one that you want. You know, Jesus is coming. That's a fact. Many do not believe it, but it is true nonetheless. The second coming of Jesus is one of the major themes of the Word of God. There are 1,845 references to it in the Old Testament, and a total of 17 Old Testament books give it prominence. Of the 260 chapters in the entire New Testament, there are 318 references to the second coming. That's one out of every 30 verses. 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to to this great event. For every prophecy on the first coming of Christ, there are eight on Christ's second coming. See, Jesus is coming. In seminary, I was told a story about a man who made covenant with death. 
The contract stated that death would not come to him unannounced and without warning. The years went by, and at last, death finally appeared before the man. The old man said, Death, you've not been true to your promise. You have not kept your covenant. You promised you would not come unannounced. You never gave me any warning. And death replied, Not so. Every gray hair in your head is a warning. Every one of your lost teeth is a warning. Your eyes growing dim and your natural power and vigor abated is a warning. Oh yes, I've warned you and warn you continually. And with those words, death swept that man into eternity. Thank you, Dr. Fettis, for that. Jesus is coming. You have been warned. Are you ready to meet him? Are you saved by his grace? Is everything as it should be between your soul and the Lord? In this large audience that we have today of over one and a half million listeners, there are some of you that have never accepted our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm asking you to seriously consider your salvation this morning. Ask yourself this question. If I died right now, at this moment, where would I spend eternity? You see, my brothers and sisters, we are in the times of the final countdown. And some of you would say, well, preacher, you don't know. You're right. I don't know. I do not know the hour of the day when our Lord will return to take home what is his. But I know this. In the months we have studied the book of Revelation, how can you not say that we are living in the last days? You see, history is being fulfilled right now, today, across the globe. The stage is set for the return of our Savior. The unrest in the Middle East points to the fact that our Savior is coming soon. There is only one thing that's missing. God has not yet said that it is time. You see, today, right now, God is still in the business of saving souls. There will come a time when invitations like this will no longer be given. The Bible says there will be weeping, welling, and gnashing of teeth. And that is only the beginning for those who are not saved. There are also some of you out there that have never been saved. There's some, many of you, that have already been saved. And what if, for whatever reason, you have strayed from the Word of God. Maybe you were hurt by something someone said. Perhaps the pastor in your church said or did something you didn't like. Perhaps he made it personal. It happens. It happened to me once. You cannot put your pastor on a pedestal and expect him to be God. People do this all the time, but that doesn't make it right. Your pastor is just a man born under the same sin of Adam as you. As we say in East Tennessee, I hate to burst your bubble, but he's also a sinner. Whatever the reason, God needs you. He needs you to return to him. He needs you to re-enlist in his army. We're, we are in the middle of a war, brothers and sisters. God needs everyone to return to him and use your talents to fight our common enemy, and spread the word of God. If you can, bow with me this morning. If you can't, and you're in your car, God has turned, heard me many times behind the wheel of my car. Bow with me, please. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the time we've had this morning to study your word. 
Father, I ask you to search the hearts of those within the sound of my voice. If they are not saved, O oh God, I ask you to touch their heart. Impress on them the need for salvation. Show them the way. Father, if there be those that have accepted your Son as their Savior and Lord, I thank you for each one of them. If there are those that are saved, but for whatever reason have turned away from you to the world, I ask you to touch their hearts also. Show them, God, how much you need them in this battle, not just for planet Earth, but for eternity. We need everyone, God, that can profess your word or serve you in some way. Touch them all, God. Guide them and protect them. For this prayer we ask in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. If you made a decision today, I would like to know about it. If you need us to pray for you, I consider it an honor. Please send an email to ministry at christlives.org or visit us on the web at www.christ-lives.org and select our contact page. You don't have to lead names. God knows who you are. If you wish to do so or would like a call from me, please feel free to include your telephone number. I don't keep this information electronically. As soon as I get it, it goes into my private journal. I promise I will not share this information with anyone unless you ask me to share the basics with others for the purposes of prayer. Thank you for your time and attention today. And may God bless you and keep you. Amen.